determined purpose of Paul's life was, first of all, to know him, to know Christ. And we looked on and we saw that it was to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of him. And we saw that when you're here today, you are in Christ today if you are a Christian because he laid hold of you, not because you laid hold of him. But he didn't just lay hold of you to get you to heaven. He laid hold of you for a purpose. And Paul said, I, my purpose of my life is to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. And so Christ laid hold of you for a purpose. He's got his end of that hold it in, holding in his hands right now. But we have to determine to grab our end from our side. And many of us go through life just living one day at a time. Some of you may have, you know, plans for your life. You may have a five-year plan, a three-year plan, a ten-year plan. I had an uncle that grew up, I mean, he had a 15-year plan for his life. And he achieved most of it. But, and you can do that, but what's God's plan for your life? Because when you get step into God's plan for your life, His blessing, His anointing, His peace, all that is of the kingdom of God begins to flow with you and through you in that direction. When you set out your own purpose for your life, you become your own God and you have to sustain it. You have to, you have to empower it. You have to deal with the obstacles. And when you set, select God's, that's what you were made for. And so we, but we also saw the apostle Paul said he had not yet attained it yet. And, but he was striving to, to lay hold of that to the upward call of God that was given to us that's in Christ Jesus. And then we went over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and we looked at one of the keys of why the Apostle Paul came to the end of his life in his ministry and said, I've run my race, I've finished my course. He did it with joy in spite of all the obstacles. If you read through 1 Acts and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and some of the things that Paul went through, you wonder how he, stayed, how he even made it, let alone finished his course. But he tells us how he did it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we saw Paul said, I've... I've, I've, I've I, first of all, I've kept my body under. And, and, and that's something we don't like to talk a lot about, but it's full of, the Scripture's full of it. It says, I kept my body under, lest having preached to others, I myself should dis, be disqualified or fall short of the goal. So he could have been a preacher that saved the whole world and yet himself fall short. And there are many preachers that have fallen into that trap. They think just because the anointing's flowing through them, just because God's using them, that therefore that means that they're okay. No, we have to walk this out and live this out just as everybody else does. There's an anointing to preach it, but there's no different anointing to live it than you have. I've got to get up every morning and I've got to deal with the same issues you've got to deal with. I've got to control my mind. I've got to make, get my will in line. I got to do, and if I don't do that, that having preached to everybody, I could still fall short of the goal and not reach the goal for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. So Paul's talking about what he did to do that. And he said, I kept my body under. And we looked last week that in the King James, it says, I buffet my body, not buffet it, buffet it. And I showed you that the word there in the Greek is a, is a boxing term. Because he's just said, I'm not like a boxer who sits, throws punches in the air. In other words, I don't throw a punch with no purpose. I don't, I don't run a race with no purpose. And the example he uses before is running a race. And we'll see as we get further on in this, in Hebrews chapter 12, it goes back, he goes back to that same metaphor, that same example of running in a race. And Paul says at the end of his life, I've run my race, I've finished the course, I've done what I was supposed to do. And he did it successfully and he completed it. 
And there are many that are strewn by the wayside that don't ever finish their course. In fact, the Bible says in the latter days, there will be more that don't finish their course than that do finish their course. Because many will fall away. They'll be distracted. They'll be led off by itching ears and think that they're right on track and be led off track because they didn't keep their eye. They didn't know what the goal was and didn't know how to keep their eyes on it. So Paul uses the example in chapter 9, he says, he says in, a, in, a, in a race, in, in the Olympic race is what he's referring to. He said, they all run in a race together, but only one's going to win the prize. And the prize that they win is a perishable wreath. We talked about that last week. It's a, it's a laurel wreath that was put around, the, laid on the head of the winning runner. And he said, you know, in a few weeks that's going to just dry up. It won't, won't last, but, but we running in a different race. And the race we're running in has two major differences. First of all, the reward is eternal. It doesn't dry up. And secondly, we can all win. In those races, only one person could win. And then he talks about the price they paid in order to win. They, they, kept them, they, they were temperate or con- self-controlled in all things. Why? So that they would be able to win this race. And I'm sure if you've ever watched the Olympic coverage, you understand, they go through the background of some of these Olympic champions, and you see the price that they paid. These skaters will sometimes get up at 4 in the morning because that's the only time they can get rink time to go out there and to practice. They'll discipline, they'll control what they eat. They won't do things that many people do. Then they don't consider it a sacrifice because all they're seeing is the goal that's set before them. If they do what everybody else does, they won't reach their goal. They won't win that get gold medal. And so they, make, they, they change their life and order their life around that one goal. And the Apostle Paul is saying, and they do that, and only one of them is going to win at the end of that four years. Only one of them is going to win. But we run in a different race. We run in a race that's an eternal race. We run in a race that has an eternal reward. Paul says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness because I've run my race, I've finished my course. And not only for me, but for all those who look forward to his coming. Those who look forward to his coming are those who are running his race. And so the apostle talks about disciplining himself. In the, one, the one metaphor is in terms of running a race. Then he switches it to boxing. And I talked to you last week, I was never a boxer, but, but what I understand about boxing, the little bit I've heard about it and seen about it, is that the boxer sizes up his opponent. It literally sizes him up. And if his opponent is bigger and has a strong, longer arm reach, he realizes he's not going to stand and just out-jab him. But he's got to have a different strategy. And so he'll come low and he'll work on the body of that boxer. And each punch doesn't look like it's doing anything. One of those punches to the body is not going to knock his opponent out, but he does understand what each punch is doing because each punch is weakening his rib cage. Each punch is softening that rib cage up so that in round six, seven, and eight, his opponent, although he may be bigger and stronger, will be having more trouble breathing and he will run out of stamina sooner than if he hadn't done that. Then he'll begin to drop his hands. And when he drops his hands, now his face is vulnerable. It's a strategy. And every punch he punches, every move he makes is designed with that strategy in mind. And that's the image that Paul's saying here. And then he moves into this principle of discipline and he says, therefore I buffet my body I, and I, I keep my body under, I discipline my body. But the word there is a word that was used for a leather strap that had hard things in it like stones in it that the boxer would use and punch his own face. And he would do that because one of the greatest 
risks a boxer has is when his opponent starts hitting him in the same spot in the face that his face will begin to swell up. And if it swells up, his eye closes and he can't see and now he's really vulnerable. So instead of having that happen in the ring with his opponent, he does it to himself before he ever gets in the ring. In other words, he, he, he punches his body. It might look hard. Why would you do that to yourself when it's for a purpose? He's paying a price so that in the battle, he won't be weak and he won't stumble. And now Paul moves into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is a continuation of the same idea. I'm going to read down through there. We've touched on a bit of this last week, and then I'm going to go on to where this takes us. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Stop there a second. What he's saying here is he's using the example of Israel coming out of Egypt, headed towards the promised land. And he's basically saying they all went through the same experience. They all cried out for deliverance. God sent Moses to all of them. When it says they were baptized into Moses, that doesn't mean that Moses was put in the water with them. The word baptized in the Greek does not just mean saturated with water. It also is used to describe being joined together. When the Bible says you're baptized into Christ, it's not just your baptism in water. It means you were joined to Christ. You were made one with Him. Because the word baptizo in Greek literally means to be saturated with. So it comes from a word where they would use to dye white linen. They would take the dye and they would lower it. They take the white linen and lower it down into the dye. And then when they bring it up, you couldn't tell the red from the, lin- the linen because the linen was now saturated with the red dye. They were joined together. So the word baptized in the New Testament, when Paul uses it, often means being joined and being made one. So he's saying here that they went through the same experience that Moses went through. They were all baptized in the same sea. They went through the same sea together. They were all ate of the same spiritual food, referring to the manna that they all ate. But that manna wasn't just a physical bread that they ate. It was God providing life to them. And Jesus refers to this in John chapter 6 as saying, I am the bread of life. Your fathers had the manna that came down from heaven, but I am the bread of life that God has given to you. And that's why Christ is involved here in these verses. But basically what he's saying is they all had the same opportunity. They all had the same deliverer. They all saw the same miracles. They were all fed with the same food. They all went to the same church. They all heard the same sermons. They all sang the same worship songs. They all had the same opportunity. But it goes on to say with most of them, God was not happy. Remember what God's purpose here is. God's taking them from the place of bondage and He's bringing them into a place that He has ordained for them to be called the promised land. It's a land flowing with blessings, a land filled with promises of what God has for them. And it's in the Bible, he says, as an example for us because we're in a similar situation. We were all in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to this world. Ephesians 2 says that we were all, all subject to the prince of this air, a prince of this world, being, living our lives according to the flesh, governed by the dictates of the flesh, which are governed by the dictates of this world. We're told, the world tells you what to want. Television's advertising is just telling you what you need. Whether you need it or not, they want to whet your appetite for what they want to sell you. And it isn't because they want you to have the best medicine available. It isn't because they want you to have headaches. It's because they want to sell their medicine to you. They want to encourage you to buy that car. They want you to do this. And so it's all designed to appeal to your appetites of your body. 
that's why if you stop and look at most advertising, logically it makes no sense. What does that girl in a bikini sitting on a car have to do with how well that car drives? But it's not designed to do that. What is that nice, cool-looking glass of beer slowly poured out before that sport? What's that got to do with, with, with you know, having gusto in your life? You drink enough of that, it'll put you to sleep, not give you gusto. <laughs> it makes no logical sense, but it's not based on logic. They're not trying to appeal to your logic. They're trying to appeal to your appetites, to sell you based on your appetites, not based on what you think you need. And that's the world we were born into. But when you come to Christ, you're delivered out of that world. We're taken out of the d- domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13 says, and we're transferred over into the dominion, the domain, the kingdom of His beloved Son. But that kingdom is not out here in the world around us. The kingdom we're transferred to is placed within us. And here's the problem. Once you come to Christ, God's life, His kingdom has been placed within you. You are a child. God is living inside of you by His Spirit. But His Spirit and His kingdom are living in a body that still belongs to this world. Your body was not redeemed yet. It will be one day. That's why we talk Wednesday night about the groanings. The groanings and the groanings within us is waiting for this body to be redeemed so we don't have to put up with this mess. But it hasn't been redeemed yet. So we have the kingdom of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the the life of God inside of us, living in a world that is in the hands of His enemy, the devil, who is evil. And and the body we live in, the body that that this kingdom of God is in, is still of the substance of this world. It still likes the things of this world. It's still attracted to the things of this world. And that's where the struggle comes. And Paul's saying, in order to finish this race, in order to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of you, there's a re- God has a responsibility, but we have a responsibility if we're going to do that. Now see, people have been raised in church, and what they've been raised in churches is under the law, where they're told, you can't eat this, and you can't go there, and you can't wear this, and you can't do this, and you can't, and mostly churches like that, they have a whole list of things you can't do. And very, the only things you can do is come to church... They always say you can eat. Isn't that interesting? Because that's the only thing they leave us with. Okay? But you can't go anywhere else. You can't do anything else. And they try to regulate what Paul's talking about by rules on the outside. So don't leave here today feeling condemned. You know, I'm I'm, I'm out of control because we're going to show you how to get it under control because the Bible tells us how to get it under control. But first of all, we've got to acknowledge the issue. And so God's promise, God's plan for Israel was to get them out of that place of bondage and get them into a place called the promised land. The promised land does not represent heaven for us, although ultimately it does. It represents the place of walking in victory. It represents the place of, of the place God has called us to go to. And the lesson here is although God called them all to go to that promised land, only a few made it. And there's a lesson here that Paul's teaching us. Just because you're saved, just because God has a destiny for your life, does not mean that you will reach that destiny. There's a part of this we have to play. And where this, why this is so important right now is where God's calling this church is the same principle. There's a part that we have to play together for that to happen. All right, let's read on.
Verse 5, but with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So that's the issue, is simply lust. And you can think, well, I don't lust because lust is, it sounds like a sexual term. No, lust is when you have to have something. You just have to have it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. All right, because he's going to give us examples. Because it's not just a sexual lust. Getting quiet in here. All right. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's go over quickly to Exodus chapter 32. This is the story he's... These are specific stories he's referring to here. So there's something that we can learn from this. I'll start reading while you're turning. Verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods so that we can... that, that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. What's happened is God had called Moses. They're out of Egypt... They're now out into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God calls Moses up on the mountain. And he's there for 40 days. And the people are getting antsy. They're getting anxious because they can't see their leader. Because their confidence was in Moses. They had to see him. Because this was a people that walked by sight and not by faith. And when Moses was out of their sight, they become uneasy because he was their security even though their leader was in the presence of God, getting God's direction and wisdom for their lives. And so what they do is they begin to get antsy, and they say, where is this Moses that led us out of Egypt? Well, Moses didn't lead him out of Egypt. God led him out of Egypt, and God used Moses. So they took their eyes off of God and had their eyes on the man. God used the man, but the man wasn't their deliverer. The man wasn't the one who led them out. My role is to teach you to look at Him. My role is to help lead you to a place where you have a relationship with Him, closer to Him. I'm not your security. I'm your pastor. Okay? And so they were got anxious, and so what they did is they came and they, just get, they started talking among themselves. And that's usually caused trouble. And they started deciding for themselves what was best. While God was, Moses was on the mountain and God was telling them what they needed. And so they decided what we need to do is make for ourselves gods so that we can worship them. So let's read on. They go to Aaron, who was Moses' brother that he had left in charge. And that's another interesting study, but we don't have the time to go there. Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings from which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off. They took their, their jewelry, basically, and they brought it to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molten calf. And then they said, This is our God, O Israel, that brought us out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw, saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Today is a feast to the Lord. Now my Bible, Lord is all uppercase, which means just Yahweh. So what they've done is they've made for themselves something they can see and they're worshiping that and trusting that as Jehovah God. They're not trying to worship Satan. They're not in some satanic ritual. 
They've made for themselves, because they can't see God, they've made for themselves a God they can worship. We're going to see what happens when you do that. They've made for themselves, they've made for themselves, they've made for themselves a God that they can worship, and they are calling Him, calling that molten calf, that golden calf, they're calling that Jehovah, the God who led us out of Israel. So they, in their mind, they weren't backsliding. In their mind, it wasn't idolatry. They're not worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Jehovah God. But they're not worshiping a God by faith. They're worshiping a God by sight. And then Aaron says, all right, we're going to now have a feast. And they conduct, they conduct burnt offerings. They conduct peace offerings, the very things that were ordained to be offered to Jeho- the tree of Jehovah God. They're offering to this golden calf that they have made by their own hands. Say, so, well, you know, I don't do that. I don't have a statue in my living room. I don't have, you know, I don't have a, a special altar with things like that. But we need to examine our lives and see what have we built into our li- what have we built into our lives that we rely on to worship? Is it my job? It can be people. It can be children. It can be spouse. It can be, it can be anything you have built into your lives, into your life, that is your deliverer. They worship this as the God that brought them out of Egypt. And here's the trap. Because what they were worshiping came from Egypt. They were worshiping with gold that came from Egypt. And they were worshiping the image of a God that they had seen in Egypt. And when we, I've never seen this before, and we're taught this before. When we, when we do that, the only place we can draw from to make our own God is out of this world. The only place we can draw from to make a God for ourselves, and again, it doesn't have to be a statue, it can be a job, it can be a car, it can be anything that is your security, anything, that you're, anything that's bringing you out, anything you're relying on in that ultimate you know, foundation level of your life. Whatever that is, the only place we can draw that from is out of this world. And so what this golden calf did, because it came out of, this, out of Egypt, it was leading their flesh and their mind and their thoughts back to Egypt. And the God that was on the mountain was trying to get them to the promised land. Now notice what happens when they did that. Verse 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before them, and Aaron made a proclamation that said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So they rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Those were a type of offering that was ordained to worship the true God. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. They started celebrating this God, and they started celebrating this God by throwing a party. We'll see how important that is in a minute. And the Lord said to Moses up on the mountain, Get down, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Out of all that story, look what is focused on here in verse 7. Do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink. 
and rose up to play. Somewhere, the Holy Spirit is drawing out of that story that last thing said about them, that they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now listen carefully, because if you don't hear this carefully, you'll get under some kind of bondage. He's not saying you can't enjoy eating food, and he's not saying we can't have fun and enjoy life. What happens here is this. Because they went, they made their own God out of Egypt, all of their senses began focused back on Egypt, their memory of what they saw, the memory of the things that they smelled, the leeks and the onions, the memory of the idols that they saw, which were all around them. Those were still ingrained in their senses. And when they built that calf, they made a choice to begin to worship things that they could see. And now their flesh lost, they lost control of their flesh. When they lost control of their flesh, the, the, the implication in the Hebrew here is not just that they had a nice refined party in the fellowship hall, that this got out of hand and becomes like an orgy. But the point is the moment they built something of their own out of the things of Egypt with their senses, their senses change direction and their senses start to head back towards Egypt. And this is the warning of idolatry. Because why, why should idolatry be the first warning? Why should it be a warning? I mean, if, if, as it says in Isaiah, why, he's got, Isaiah says, why do you worship idols? They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't save you. I mean, what's the danger of worshiping something that's, that's just a dead inanimate? What was the danger of worshiping a calf made of gold? It can't, what's the harm in that? It's just, it's the thing. It's not the thing itself. It's where your heart goes. Because if we go on and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul brings this over to discussing communion, the communion table. And he says, when you eat of the communion table, you're fellowshipping with Christ. You're not literally taking his body into you, but it symbolizes your union with him. And he talks to them because what they were doing is they were doing the same thing at the temple Diana. When those animals were sacrificed, they were going over with their old friends and they were eating there at those meals at the temple. And he says, don't you understand when you do this, you're partaking of the spirit that's behind that. So when you partake of communion, you're partaking of the union that you have in your kingdom of God inside of you with Christ. He says, but when you go eat of that table that's been sacrificed to to idols, he says, "You're, you're partaking of the spirit that they're worshiping with that. And so it's not the things you do, it's the spirit that's behind it and where that's going to lead you. But the whole point of this discussion in 1 Corinthians 10 is it leads it through our senses. It's the only avenue Satan has to you anymore is through your sight, your hearing, your touch, your taste, your emotion and your smell, your emotions that come through those things. Let's go on to the next one. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Let's go look at, uh, at Numbers 25. We'll come back here. Numbers 25. Very quiet in here today. That's good. Now, this is referring to Israel as they're getting near the promised land. 
Now Israel remained in the acacia grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now here's what happens, is, is their men, they're moving from the wilderness, which is in the Sinai Peninsula. They're coming up towards the eastern side of what's now Palestine on the Jordan River. And they run into this, the Moabites, which is a people that worship idols and performed all kinds of lewd worship practices. They used prostitutes in their worship, which was not at all uncommon in the pagan services. And, and they've come up in their, in their, their, their camp near there, and the men start going to visit those women that were part of the worship service with their fornication in, in, in the Moabites' practices. And, and that, this is how it started. They gave in to the desire of their flesh. They didn't control it. And look what happened. It says, The people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab, and they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So it started by just, you know, I got a need. My wife just doesn't fulfill my needs, so I'm going to go take care of myself. And he's, oh, I'll go visit the Moabites. And however it happened, he didn't, he tried to meet their physical, sexual need in a way other than God had ordained. And so, well, what harm can that do? But what happens is, when they did that, they began to submit themselves, their, their, their selves, not just their flesh, to the appetite of the Moabites. And now the Moabites invite them to come to their festivals, their celebrations for their sacrifices. And look what it says about them. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. I don't imagine that they intended to do that in the beginning. I don't think they said, let's go worship the Moabite gods. But what they did is they followed their control, they followed the dictates of their flesh, which were not being controlled. They were not being disciplined. And as a result, they found themselves in places they never intended to go. And so they started attending the pagan sacrifices. They are started attending the pagan worship services. And look what it says about them because of that. Verse 3. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Baal is an Old Testament name given to Satan. Israel, because of this, as a result of this, Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So by not recognizing what their flesh could do, where it could take them, they ended up spiritually joined, and God had to discipline them. We're not going to go into how he did it. We don't take the time. All right. Let's move on to something more exciting. <laughs> Let's go to verse 9, back in 1 Corinthians. Verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ or test Christ, as some of, that, some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Let's go to Numbers 21. I should have told you to keep your finger back in Numbers. Numbers 21, but it's good exercise. Now this story should sound a little familiar to us. We're going to start in verse 4. 
So they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became discouraged or downcast along the way. Be careful of discouragement. Be careful of discouragement. It's, it's so easy. See, the whole lesson of this is that when Israel got to the edge, to the promised land and sent spies in there, God didn't keep them out. God didn't say to them, oh, look, you know, you failed a bunch of tests along the way. I'm not letting you in. God was angry because they wouldn't go in. The reason they failed to go in was because they made a series of decisions all along the way that when they got there, they choose, chose to not go in. And the lesson of this that the Apostle Paul is teaching us is we need to learn from their lesson. Because it says, as I, again, it says in, the, in, in 2 Timothy that many in that last days, many are going to fall away. Many are going to be led away. God's not going to push them out. God's not going to say, hey, you know, everybody in this side of the church, forget you guys, I like you guys better. He's trying to tell us. Because we live in a world that's saturated with our enemy. We're on foreign territory. I talked on Wednesday night. It's as if we've been dropped behind enemy lines. We say, oh my goodness, this world is getting worse and worse. Yes, it is. We're on the enemy's territory. That's why you have to learn to see your life as your... It's not, it's not, oh, I'm here to enjoy. This is your assignment. We're in the army of the Lord. We're in the army of the Lord, and whether you like it or not, you're, if you're in Christ, you're in His army, you're in His body, you're in His army, and He has a will and a purpose in this world, and there's an enemy opposing it, and He's dropped us behind enemy lines. That's why it's so important for us to stay together. It's so important to us, because we're in the same foxhole together. Because there's an enemy out there shooting at us who doesn't like us. It's not you. It's nothing personal. He doesn't like the kingdom that we've come from because it's a threat to him. It's the only threat to him. And so we need to recognize his devices. This is what Paul's warning them about. So it's because they made a series of decisions to follow what their flesh wanted to do that when they got to that place, they, were not, they chose to not enter in. All right. So there, oh, I was talking about um, uh, being discouraged because discouraged is an emotion that's very powerful. It's powerful in two directions. If you don't deal with it, it will begin to pull you down. And then if you begin to talk to others, it'll spread because it's contagious. Just as encouragement is contagious, discouragement is contagious. That's why the psalm talks so much about praising the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. I memorized the first 10 verses. I really felt God tell me to do that last year. And there have been times when that's I would get up in the morning and I could feel discouragement try to press in on me. You say, you do? Oh yeah, I'm human just like you are. But I opened my mouth and I would say, I'll bless the Lord at all times. I, w- I will. Not I feel like it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. And on and on and on. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. You need to stir yourself up. Because discouragement is the beginning. 
It always comes from thinking about yourself and your situation and what's wrong. And the more you do that, the more that discouragement. It's like at this time of year, well, as soon as the snow goes, we begin to prepare our gardens. You you dig it up, you get rid of the clods, you prepare the garden so you can plant a seed. Well, the devil does the same thing. He tries to prepare the seed of the ground of your heart so he can plant in your heart what he wants to plant. In Matthew 13, God talks about how God wants to plant in your heart what he wants to plant. Both of them require preparation of the soil first and discouragement, thinking about what's wrong, thinking about how I'm not getting what I should be getting, thinking about how, how I'm this, not... This is why the Bible, Paul talks so much about learning to be content with what you have. Because contentment with godliness has a great reward. Discontent. The seeds of discontent are what Satan begins to work in. That's the atmosphere he works in. And we don't realize that it's a weapon. We don't realize what it means. We don't realize that it's bait. And there's a hook in there to take us down to the next level. So they were discontent. They, were, they, were, they didn't like what they, was going on, even though God was the one providing for them. They were discouraged along the way. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God. That's the next thing you should do is we open our mouth and speak out out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And they spoke against God and against Moses and saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worsome bread. Wait a minute. I thought they said there was no food. How can there be no food and they loathe this bread we have. It's not that there's no food, there's no food they like. So now they're complaining. And they're complaining to God and Moses. By the way, they didn't have to pay for the food. It was free. All they had to do was get up every morning and collect it. But they forgot that. See, when you're complaining when you're feeling sorry for yourself, you don't see what you have. You don't recognize the benefits and the blessings you have. All you see is what you don't have. And the more you think about what you don't have and the more you talk about what you don't have, the bigger what you don't have looks to you and the smaller what you do have. And the things you do have are the eternal things. So they were at the point where they were complaining about the food that they had. God brought it to them. And if we're not careful, we'll complain about what God's done in our lives. And we'll forget what God's done in our lives. We'll forget Egypt and what God brought us out of. We'll forget what that bondage was like to wake up every morning with no hope. To wake up every day in fear of what was going to happen. Imagine, I cannot imagine what it's like to live in this world today and not know Christ. I cannot imagine what it's like to live in this world today and not have a hope of the future. It may not be clear to me yet. It may not be in focus yet, but I know it's there. I know that if all else fails, if I died today, I know I'm going to heaven, so I got that. I don't know what it's like to live in this world. We need to remember that sometimes. Because when we're thinking, I don't have this and I don't have that, and yeah, I know, God, I have a nice house, but you know, it's not as nice as somebody's house. I may have a car, but it's not as nice as somebody's car. What you have, God gave you. Do you have breath in your lungs this morning? Be thankful for it. Do you know how many times your heart has been beating ever since you came to church? And every one of those beats is a gift from God. 
Can you see today? That's God's grace. Learn to be thankful. In fact, if you went back to Deuteronomy 28, one of the reasons the curse came on them was they were ungrateful. And sometimes it's a discipline. You have to make yourself be thankful. So when I find myself feeling discouraged, I start opening my mouth, and instead of complaining, I start opening my mouth and just praise God, whether I feel like it or not, especially when I don't feel like it. Because there's a lot to be thankful for. There's a lot to praise Him for. And you know what? I begin to then see other things. It changes your whole perspective. Okay. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's not why God brought them out. God brought them out of Egypt to get them into the promised land. God brought you out of the world to get you to the destination God has for you. He laid hold of you for a purpose. Not to die in this world. Not to succumb to this world. But He laid hold of you at a purpose. And see, they lost sight of where they were headed. They lost sight. The, and this is the difference. Because what you'll find is this generation dies in the wilderness. And the generation that was born in the wilderness that was not born in Egypt is the one that enters in the promised land. Why? The old expression, it is true. God got them out of Egypt, but He couldn't get Egypt out of them. God got them out of Egypt but Egypt was too much in their senses. It was too much in their memory. And even though they were the ones that cried out for deliverance, they cried out to get delivered out of Egypt, there was a part of them that still longed for the, what they saw was the benefits of Egypt. So they wanted the freedom of being out of there, but they wanted the enjoyment of the food and the pleasures that Egypt offered. And the concern we have today is that's where the church is. We've been delivered out of bondage. We've been delivered out of the power of sin, Satan. We've been delivered out of the powers of this world and transferred into the kingdom of his God. But we still long for the things that the world has to offer. And, and, and I'm not saying, you know, go sit on, on top of a mountain in a monastery because that doesn't do anybody any good. But this is why Paul said, I have to, I have to keep my body under. I have, it's a daily thing. I've got to keep it under. I've got to watch over it and make careful of it and keep it under. Because if I, don't, if I don't, I'm the only one that can keep it under. We'll talk later on about how God's provided a way to do that. But you've got to see what the issue is. You've got to see that the point is the decision that we make every day and what is tied to that decision. All right, let's move on. So what happens, of course, here, So God sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. Fiery means poisonous. And many of the people of Israel died. I really believe what happened is that their sin manifested. Their sin just manifested. Because serpent represents Satan in the Bible, obviously because that's the form he took to enter into the garden to tempt that first man and first woman. Fiery means poisonous, venomous. What was happening is 
they would be bitten, their, their sin manifested, and it was biting them back. And they were dying from it. So guess who they go to when they get in trouble? The guy that they were saying, he's caused all this trouble for us. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. In other words, make the image of one of these snakes. And put it on a pole so that everyone, when anyone, that anyone, everyone who is bitten, when they look at it, they shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Now in the Old Testament, materials like gold and silver and bronze have a significance. And bronze represents sin that's judged. In the tabernacle, God had the brazen altar, the bronze altar made, which has represented the cross, where the sacrifices of the animals and the peace offerings and the other offerings were made were on this fiery, on this furnace that was made of bronze, basically of bronze, and that represented sin that was judged. When you get into the, where the presence of God is, it's all made of gold, which represents deity. So the significance here is he's taking, he's taking a piece of bronze and forming it like a serpent which was what that was biting them, which represented their sin. And then he said, put it up on a pole. Lift it up high. So that everyone that looks at it, and listen carefully, after they've been bitten, didn't keep them from being bitten. But after they were bitten, if they looked at that, then they wouldn't die. Jesus refers to this in John chapter 3. says, just as Moses was raised, lifted up a serpent on a pole, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So this represents the cross, the way out of sin, that when it bites you, you can still live. When you're bitten by your own sin, there's still a way out of forgiveness so you can live, and it's the cross. If anyone sins, anyone confesses a sin, he is faithful and just to forgive him and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. So God even provided a way out for them. He didn't keep them from being bitten. Their sin bit them. But once they were bitten, if they chose to look at the serpent, the judged sin on that pole, then they would not die from that bite. All right, let's move on. Back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to Numbers one more time, so you might keep something there. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look now at verse... nor complain as some of them also complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer let's go to Numbers 14 notice they were discouraged and they complained and here's the story of them coming to the edge of the wilderness we're going to look in um, Verse 19. Now what's happened here is they've come to the edge of the wilderness. They've sent the spies in. The spies have come back and said, everything God, everything God said about the, wilderness, the, 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 uh, um, the promised land is true. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Here are grapes to show you how wonderful its produce is. But there's giants in this land. There's enemies in this land. And by the way, God did tell them that they were there. 
and then said, but the problem is these enemies are there and they're giants and we're just grasshoppers in their sight and we're grasshoppers in our own sight. So the fundamental problem was they kept looking at themselves. They saw what God was offering them. They saw what God's destiny. They saw what God has called them to. But in that land, there are obstacles. By the way, you know in what God's called us to do, there are giants out there. There are demons out there that don't want you doing what God's called you to do. There are forces of darkness in this world today that wants to intimidate us to just sit back here and have a nice church where we sing nice music and hear nice, nice encouraging words of the gospel. God loves you. Everything's going to be okay. Don't you know how much God loves you? And just wonderful things like that. And just be safe and secure in here so that he can do what he wants to do. Just stay in our foxhole together so that he can go ravage the countryside and destroy the people that God loves so much. That's not what we're here to do. He wants to intimidate us. And here's why they were intimidated. Because they kept measuring themselves. They would look at themselves. Satan's number one trick, it was back in the garden, and it's the same today, is to keep you looking at yourself. Notice how they were delivered when they were bitten by the snakes, not by looking at themselves, by looking at the serpent that was raised up, by looking at what was to represent Christ on the cross. God's word is filled with instructions to take our eyes off of ourselves and look unto him, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith gazing at him, trusting in him. We quote so often Matthew, uh, Mark 20, 11, 23, and 24, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he said shall come to pass. And therefore I say unto you, Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe you receive them, and you shall have. But we forget verse 22, which is the heart of all that. Have faith in God. And we try to speak to mountains, and we try to exercise, uh, speak to things, and, and pray for things, but we haven't been having faith in God, who God is, His character, His nature. That's really what faith is at its bottom line. It's not saying the right things, that's part of it. It's not believing the right thing. It's simply believing who He is and trusting Him. But to do that, you have to keep looking at Him while Satan keeps getting you to look at yourself. That's what's happening here. They were looking what they didn't have. They were comparing what they have here to what they had in Egypt, and they was very untrustworthy to do that because our memory's terrible. We tend to deal with things when what they are right now. We, we have, and, and, and all God kept telling them to do is look at him. Look at him. Look at him. Look what he can do. Look at his word, who he says he is. Do you understand? God can do anything. Yes, you don't really believe that. You get much more excited. God can do anything. There's no issue in your life, in your family, that's even hard for God. But we get discouraged, we get overwhelmed because we're looking at those circumstances in terms of what we know we can do, what people we know we can do. Well, I've got to get a bunch of people around me to pray. And what we're really looking for is support for us. But the God you pray for, the God you listen to, the God who listens to you can do anything. It's when, why when Jairus had Jesus and they're going to, to heal his daughter and the man comes from his house and says, I'm sorry, Bester, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. That's about as late as it can get. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, 
I'm sorry, the woman stopped us, you know. I tried my best, you know. And he says, turn to Jairus. And I bet he grabbed his robes. It doesn't say that. I bet he pulled himself. He says, Jairus, fear not. Only believe. In other words, I don't care what they said. I don't care if she's dead. Lazarus is dead four days. I'm the resurrection and the life. Fear not. Here's what you got to do, Jairus. Don't fear, only believe. Because with God, all things are possible. Abraham believed in a God who called things into existence, who could raise the dead and call, could call things into existence that never existed before. Why wouldn't we keep looking at that God? Why wouldn't we keep talking to Him? Why wouldn't we develop our relationship with a God who loves us and wants to save us and deliver us from all our troubles? Why would we not keep our eyes on that God instead of looking at ourselves and at each other and what we can't do? Why? Because we have an enemy out there who works on our senses. And because we don't discipline our senses, we're just open to anything that comes along just like dumb sheep. Isn't that what the Bible says we are? <laughs> All right, let's move along. So that's what happens. So in verse 19, God's angry. And Moses says, Pardon the iniquity of this people. I pray according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt even up till now. And the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have not and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of these who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. And then God tells them what to go on and do. And he goes on to say to them, and here's what's going to happen. Because what they kept saying is, you, they kept complaining that God, God brought us out of Egypt and brought us into the wilderness to die. And what God, God goes on to say, what's now going to happen to you is exactly what you said was going to happen to you. All of the generation that came out of Egypt that's complained against me and said, God brought us out here to die, this is where you're going to die. They didn't die right away. He said, I've got to wait until all of you die off. And I don't believe it was simply punishment. I I believe it was protection. Because if God put them in there, they never would have overcome the enemies because they were afraid of the enemy because they had followed their senses this whole time in the wilderness. God says, your carcasses shall fall. I heard Tony Cook one day say, you know, when God mentions your name and carcasses in the same sentence, that's not good. (laughs) But the generation that was born here, the generation that was not born in Egypt, the generation that was born out here seeing me feed you every day, seeing me take care of you, seeing me bring water out of a rock, seeing me drop bread, that generation I will be able to bring in. Plus, Caleb 
who was of the older generation because he had a different spirit in him. His spirit, when they saw the wilderness the first time, he says, I know they're giants in there. God told us that. But we're well able to. Why? Because God said we can have it. So he was a man of faith. Joshua was a man of faith. Those two had to wait 40, 39 more years to get into the promised land. But they made it. They made it. They made it. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll begin to wind this phase down. So God forgave them, but they couldn't lay hold of that for which He had laid hold of them. All these, verse 11, happened to them as examples and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of this age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And here's the good news. There's no temptation that's overtaken you except such as is common to man. And so he's telling them, this is both good news and a warning. Don't think you're so strong. Don't think you're so spiritual. Don't think you know the Word so well that you don't have to be on guard against your own flesh. Because the moment you say you can handle it, I'm convinced there's a bell that goes off in hell. Oh, I can handle this. A bell, bing, we got one. We got one. There's no temptation that's come against you that's not common to man. That means the Bible's full of examples from which we can easily learn because there's nothing that's going to come against you that hasn't come against others. So we've got examples of the Garden of Eden. We've got examples of Samson and Delilah and how easily he was let off because he didn't control his passions, his physical passions. Man called by God, anointed with power to do amazing things. He was a man anointed. It wasn't because, you know, we get this, Samson was. He couldn't have been because they could try to figure out where his strength came from. If Samson was 6'8", 350 pounds of rippling muscle, they would have said, I wonder where he gets his strength from. But he must have been sort of an ordinary man. I'm sure he was in good shape but he must not have been something unusual about him because they're trying to figure out what his secret is. And here's a man anointed by God to do miracles, destroy enemies, just with the jawbone of a donkey. Thousand men. And he ends up blind, chained, servant. Why? Because he thought his strength was enough. He thought his gifting was enough. He thought he could handle it. And Satan had a bell go off. Ah, there's a pretty thing over there in Philistia. Her name's Delilah. Let's have her move her way across his path. And he said, whoa. Not recognizing where this would lead because she was not from the nation he should have pursued. It's really simple. 
and yet it's so hard. God knows us well enough to know what it takes to keep us out of trouble. And if we just do what he says, we'll be okay. But it's the pride of life that says, yeah, I know what the word says, but I can handle it. I know, I know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, know, I know what the word says, but I can handle it. Israel thought they could handle it. One of the most telling things to me is in Exodus 19, where Israel, God pulls, becomes Moses on the, on the mountain. He says, I want you in three days to bring Israel around the base of this mountain. And you take today and tomorrow and you have them consecrate themselves. Get themselves ready. And you bring them out. I'm going to come down and I'm going to come down because God comes, displays himself in many different forms depending on what he wants to do. He says, I'm going to come down in power and thunder and lightning. And so they did all that. They came around the base of the mountain. God comes down on top of that mountain and the ground shook like it never shook before. They saw thunder and lightning capsule the top of the mountain. You know, and Israel looks at this and says, whoa. And they ran back to their tents and they called Moses and they say, Moses, you go talk to him. This is too scary for us. Now listen carefully. You go find out what God says and come to Allah and tell us and we will do it. This was their understanding of what it took for them to walk right before God. They wanted to walk right before God. I believe they were sincerely wanted to obey Him, but they thought they knew how to do that. God knew them, because by the way, they said they would do what God said, and they didn't. Their intentions were not enough. And your intentions and my intentions are not enough. God knew that if they saw His power and His glory, that they would develop a fear of the Lord, not afraid of Him, a holy reverence for who He was. Because He said, if they, if they see Me, then they will not sin. God knew what it took for them not to disobey Him. God knew what it took for them not to disobey Him. They thought they knew better than God how to do it. And we do the same thing. We read the Word and we say, I want to do that. And I'm talking to me as much as you. And yet God has built things into His Word. If we just simply do them, they will keep us out of trouble. God told Israel, I want you to have no interrelationship with foreign nations because if you have interrelationship with them, I mean get marry their wives, have physical relationship with them because what will happen is those wives will bring their foreign gods into your tent. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, violated that 700 and some times and fell. The wisest man that ever lived simply did not do what God said because he thought he could handle it. Because he thought he could control himself. Take heed if you think you can stand lest you fall because there's no temptation that's come against you that's not common to man but here's the good news but God is faithful but God is faithful 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 here again notice it's taking my eyes off of me it's taking my eyes off of I can handle this I want this I have to do this it's taking my and taking your eyes on him He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. Not just to forgive us when we sin, but He's faithful if we'll do what He says to keep us from sinning. 
He's faithful. No temptation has come against you that's not common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you, oh, this is so reassuring, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to handle. Think of that. God's watching over your whole life and will not allow Satan to bring some temptation across your path that God has not determined you're able to handle. Now, you may not think you can handle it, but God knows you better than you know. God will not allow you to be tempted by something that He has not determined already that you can't handle. That means if I give in to it, it's not because the devil made me do it. Sorry, Flip Wilson. The devil cannot make you do... If God can't make you do something, why do we think the devil can make us do it? That's an excuse for our flesh. Oh, the devil tempts us. But because in many cases we're just so used to giving in, it feels as if he made us do it. And that's why we need to begin to buffet ourselves. We need to discipline ourselves. All right. God is faithful. God is faithful. Who is, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able to handle and with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it or go through it. So every time you realize you're in a temptation, you can know several things. First of all, God's already determined, I can avoid this. I can get through this. Secondly, God's provided a way of escape. There's a way out of this so that I can make it through it to the other side. So I need to learn to look for that. I need to learn to look for that. What we're going to begin to look at next week is the way of escape God's given us. What we're going to begin to look at next week is God's provided in His Word a way of escape. What we've seen today is we've seen the problem. It's like Snoopy. I've looked around and realized the enemy is his flesh. It's my flesh is the problem. But the good news is the Word of God tells us that God has provided a way. And that way is in you right now. It's in your lap. It's inside of you. God has provided a way of escape. Not to get away, not to avoid the temptation, to go through it and not have it touch you. We love to live in a land, a place where oh, I don't ever want to be tempted with evil. I don't ever want to be then you won't grow. You won't mature. I'll leave with a story. We last week went home and we're watching a I've forgotten who the preacher was on TV, and he told this story. He's talking about trials in our life and, and why, why we have to go through trials. He told the story of, any of you may have heard this, he told the story of a little boy, and it's a fictional story, but who was out playing in the woods, and he really was a nature lover. He really enjoyed nature. And he saw hanging from this branch on this twig a cocoon, and he could see inside this cocoon there was a butterfly struggling and you realize that this butterfly was struggling. You know, a cocoon starts with a, 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 a caterpillar that weaves the cocoon, and then in the process it's changed into a beautiful butterfly. And of course, that's why a butterfly is a symbol of a born-again Christian. And he saw this butterfly in there struggling to get out because this, out, this, the, 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 the tissue of this cocoon was holding him captive. So out of the compassion of his heart, this little boy decided to help the struggling butterfly. 
So he reached over very delicately with his fingers and he began to unwrap the remaining tissue that was holding him in. And he got it around far enough so that the butterfly fell out and fell to the ground and tried to stretch his wings out and he wasn't strong enough to stretch his wings out. And all of a sudden the boy began to cry because he realized what he'd done. What the boy didn't understand is the struggle of that butterfly to get free of the cocoon was the very thing that was strengthening his wings so that he could fly. And by removing the challenge, by removing the pressure, by removing the obstacle, the little boy unwittingly and out of misplaced compassion, we got to be careful, removed the very thing that God's, and God's nature had designed to make this butterfly strong enough to fly and he'd actually weakened it. That's a lesson we need to recognize because God will not allow anything in your life that he has not determined that you can't handle with the help I'm going to teach you next week. But with it, God provides the way of escape. Not that we avoid it so that we can go through it and get strengthened and come out the other side victorious. And next week we'll begin to look at those ways that God has provided for us. Let's pray. Father, we realize today that you've talked to us about some very serious things and some things that are very personal to our lives. We love to hear about theology. We love to hear about the end times. We love to hear about other things, but this is very much where we live. But that's where you are. You are in our day. You live inside of us and you walk through the day with us. And so much of our day, Father, we spend not even conscious of you. We're focused on what's got to be done and this problem, this issue in my life, and I don't know how to handle this, and I'm overwhelmed by this. And we spend so much of our time, Father, thinking about, worrying about, struggling about ourselves. Help us by the power of your Spirit to lift our eyes off of ourselves and to begin to see you. Not someone distant, not a God that's distant in the heavens, but a God who's come from heaven to earth and come from earth to dwell within us, your presence in us. Strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man that Christ may be able to live his life in us and through us that being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know together the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding so that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that's at work in us, be glory forever. Amen.